You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss implies the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. Welcome once again, everyone, to... No Time to Turn, a KISS nerd podcast. Nerds. Nerds. Uh, nerds. <laughs> we are charting the history of KISS, album by album, year by year. And uh, as always, we have to uh, qualify this by saying we are not experts, nor do we claim to be experts. We're just... We know a lot. We're, we, we know stuff. We've, we're, we're just going to talk about the stuff. I know that a we thing know. or two. Yeah, and yeah, so, just, about them. I had a friend of mine uh, <laughs> list, well, that was listening to the show and uh, said that uh, I told him he should be on the show at some point, and he uh, replied by saying, uh, "I'm just another opinionated Kiss fan." Well, you know what? So are we. Yeah, it's just every, all we everyone's are. A, an opinionated Kiss fan, and opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one, and they all stink. <laughs> Gene Simmons asshole, 2004. <laughs> and that one most definitely stinks. Well, what are we going to be getting into today? Well, I guess we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. Mm-hmm. Where uh, I think we are in the middle of their first tour. Yeah. And uh, Kisser. Uh, not exactly conquering the world yet. They're not setting the world on fire, but they are making inroads slowly but surely. They're an anomaly on the live touring circuit with their uh, unusual show. Yeah, they started doing uh, fire engine lights and uh, drum risers and, uh, you know, all, a lot of the mainstay. You know, and the levitating the drum do. riser, which was, uh, has famously been discussed, operated with a... Uh, like, uh, a like a ropes and chain. <laughs> I was picturing it just being warbly as and, hell and being hand raised every night. Their uh-huh. road crew is a notorious gang of uh, probably degenerates the best and, degenerates and thugs. They're just picture seventies roadie. <laughs> you can you know you can see some of this in some of the existing video of the time where you see these guys and they got they're like uh, they're led by a guy named uh, Rick Stewart if I remember right and you know this guy was not a big guy but I think they all carried themselves in a way as to be pretty intimidating and they were all deeply committed. And supportive of the group, which of course was very important. But they're showing up at the shows wearing studded leather wristbands and leather jackets and mirrored sunglasses, and Probably sometimes they're getting mistaken as being the members band. of the band, and they're not. They're just the road crew. Meanwhile, the guy, meanwhile, the guys in the band are just kind of like he's 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 cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, we aren't in the era of limousines and tour buses and and a fleet of tractor trailer rigs carrying their equipment these are guys traveling in a back of a station wagon mm-hmm. being shoe strung along on a overextended american express card there's no money in 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 play yet it's all just 
oh, we'll pay you later. Yeah. And to even kind of exemplify all of that, uh, something we were kind of discussing off microphone, which is, you know, when we start talking about these first three records, a lot of it kind of all ties together because they were extremely prolific during those first couple of years. They did not break. So during this first Kiss tour, it started February 5th of 74, ended October 4th, 74. And then the Higher Than Hell tour kicked off immediately October 16th, 74. Yeah. And then ended February 22nd, 75, with Dress to Kill kicking off March 19th. Yeah, so all this touring is going nonstop, basically, on up through 1975. Yeah. Um, and really deep into 76, which I'll, we'll, we'll get there. But in the in the moment, it's it's 1974. They're touring uh, pretty, pretty hardcore. Uh, I think it's interesting to note that they're playing the Rust Belt, if I guess you want to call it the Midwest, Great Lakes region. Yeah. I've got them. I've counted it. It's at least 20 times that they're playing between low, uh, Lower Ontario and on through Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, all mm-hmm. kind of roped around where the Great Lakes are. Basically, yeah. And, and that's going to prove very important to him i think it's it's uh worthy of note that this is going to be the area that kind of breaks them initially and you can see they're heavily concentrated in this in this region in this era and what's also interesting looking at this first tour uh so they were kind of hitting all that area in you know eight or early april uh, since all three of us here are based in Charlotte, North Carolina, of course, I have to pull up to see what that location was. So we had April 21st, 74, Charlotte, North Carolina at Flashes. A club called Flashes, which was way out on North Tryon in Charlotte, which is now kind of closer to what is the uh, known as the university area. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, that building hosted a number of different clubs up until about the late 80s when it burned down oh wow okay did Um, you ever get to go no i I never went there i met a guy that was at that kiss show though oh really yeah i I can't remember his name but he played with um, a guy named scott savage who just Mm -hmm. recently passed away it was a local luminary here in charlotte but um I and and what stuck in my head that I remember him telling me. Now this has been thirty years ago since I talked to this guy, but he talked about that the opening band had a similar kind of stage show thing going on. Interesting. And I've looked that up since, and I thought it was the band Isis, which was an, another I think New York band that was mm-hmm. doing a theatrical presentation, but they were more of a. It was different than Kiss. It was like a, an ensemble thing. So I'm yeah, not exactly sure what the deal was. But this band was called Ritual, and I don't know anything about them. But that's that's local lore, local stuff, <laughs> you know, whatever. But of course, but we have to. But we have to mention it because this is us. This is our thing. Um, I'll tell you what's interesting is, uh, well, I lived across the street. 30 years ago from a guy that was a major league blue oyster cult fan. He was from, he, I don't, somewhere on long Island, he grew up and we got to talking one day and he was telling me about how much he loved blue oyster cult and he would never miss any of their shows back in the day. And I was like, Oh yeah, I, you know, and I, I like blue oyster cult, but I'm more of a kiss fan. You know, he's like, yeah, I never much care for kiss, but you know, I mean, this guy had blue oyster cult. He was bragged about like he had a t-shirt collection cause he had like a tour shirt from every tour they ever oh, did. Oh wow. Yeah. And he was like, you know, we're kiss nerds. He was a blue oyster cult nerd. 
And he starts to tell me, he goes, well, I saw Kiss one time. He goes, yeah, you know, they played with uh, Blue Oyster Cult. It was like a, he goes, I, I think it was, it was either New Year's Eve or 4th of July. And I was like, huh? And he's like, yeah, and, well, he goes, they were playing, it was, he goes, oh, it was New Year's. He goes, I got to, he knew somebody on the Blue Oyster Cult Rook or something. Or yeah. Maybe it was somebody that worked at the Academy of Music. I don't remember, but he got, it was somebody he knew that greased them in to see shows there. And he told me the, the whole story, you know. Kiss were unannounced, and everyone were like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> and he goes, "And the guy caught his hair on fire, and the roadie guy came over and uh, put it out, and we were just like, God damn, you know." <laughs> and I'm sitting there, you know, with my eyes wide open, with my jaw to the floor. I was like, and "You then, saw that?" You know, I'm like, "You don't understand. This is like a famous, you know, story, story in Kiss lore. You know, yeah. like everybody knows that story. He didn't know anything about it. He just remembered it from, you know, because he knew nothing of Kiss. Wow." To him, it was just some annoying band. And it, how weird is it? Then you know, in, in rural North Carolina, I ended up moving across the street from a guy that was there. Yeah, right. You know? And also talking about other really cool shows on this tour. Uh, something you posted on your Instagram today. I would assume this is probably from that first tour, considering yeah. the logo they decided to use. You posted a New York Dolls and Kiss event from June twelfth in Flint, Flint, Michigan. They played two or three shows with the Dolls. They also played that same week. They played Cleveland and. Um, I forget where else. Oh, right here. Uh, I actually was able to pull it up since you, that was correct. Uh, Toronto, uh, uh, and they played up in Canada with uh, New York Dolls. Yeah. Where would that have been? Ontario. I, yeah. Well, yeah, but where in Ontario? Oh, uh, Toronto. Toronto. See, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Lower Ontario, they would play Toronto and London, mm-hmm. which is in between Detroit and Toronto. Um but no, man, that that to me would be a time machine show. I would love to go back to see that. Yeah, well, you know, that's uh, it's interesting to me. They didn't probably package that more often and more frequently. But I think, you know, we've talked about this for whatever reason. Kiss connected with people in a way the dolls never did. And, and you know, we can go into the reasons why. I think. Yeah. Because, I mean, we, we all I think we all you know love the dolls and oh yeah and it's difficult to see with hindsight from our perspective why that didn't connect in in a similar fashion but it you know for whatever reason it didn't i think just society norms yeah, they couldn't they couldn't quite grasp what it was i think the dolls are trying to do they didn't mm-hmm. see it as campy they were taking it at face value they probably thought these guys are a bunch of homosexuals oh. Oh. <laughs> they're gonna threaten they're gonna the... threaten our <laughs> fabric of life but the dolls kind of like thrived in their corner though did and they whereas kiss had to expand to find uh and thrive how to explain like with new york dolls you never heard uh, about any you know tours that got them anywhere outside of you know new york or anything like that and with kiss they ha- would have to take support tours with argent or you know go out with rush and you know bands like that yeah i'm not really sure what the the doll story there is um you know there's uh you seem to have connected pretty well in los angeles too but you know, and you would think, okay, well, they're hitting the two major media markets from the East Coast and West Coast. But, you know, without having that connection in the Midwest, which is the point I'm trying to make with KISS. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, which was very much a, a, a you know, a working class, you know, denim and flannel kind of, you know, 
or I don't know meat and potatoes meat kind and potato of thing, thing. You know? I, think, yeah. I think anything that was perceived as too fey mm-hmm. was not going to be as readily embraced now I think the dolls probably did okay but not, not you know obviously it wasn't enough to carry it over I you know this is only speculation I can't really figure out exactly what happened there but um, and then actually uh, to kind of keep it on the same topic of this tour a few dates after uh, they did three shows back to back with a band called Outlaw and they did the 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd all in Atlanta. Yeah, that, well, they would, that would have been, uh, there was a club down there called, uh, I think it's called the Electric Circus. Alex Cooley's Electric, Electric Ballroom. Electric Ballroom. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would have been like, yeah, they, that would, they would have done a, 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 you know, a series of shows. Oh, kind of like a residency. A residency for the week or whatever. That was, you know, that wasn't entirely uncommon back then. It was probably a little more uncommon for Kiss. Mm-hmm. But um, that would, like, back in the day, you would have groups take over, like, Max's for a week or the Bitter End later on. And you that, know, Lou Reed played a lot of, uh, you know, week-long residencies at places in New York as opposed to playing the... You know, a larger hall for one night, they would play a smaller room for a series of nights. Right. Yeah, because they did. They did June 19th through the 22nd there, and then they came right back around with July 17th and 18th back at the same place with a different band, Fat Chance. But then again, we got to throw it back to our folks literally the next day back up in North Carolina in Fayetteville to with a Blue Oyster Cult, Nazareth, and Glass Moon at the cover Cumberland Auditorium. Okay, yeah, that would be a show to That's see. But that was probably Kiss opening on that bill. Oh, yeah, this was still a first album tour. It probably, I, I would assume Nazareth was the headliner on that. I don't know. Check out the uh, lineup on this date. On September, 19, uh, uh, September 30th, 1974 in Evansville, Indiana, it's Kiss, Billy Preston, and Rush. Yeah, that's an unusual bill. Mm. Yeah. There, yeah. That, there's the time machine. But I still show. think it would be a fun show to go see. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, I, would, I wouldn't mind seeing that. This is like pre Neil Pert Rush, yeah, too. Yeah, that was when Rush was still a, a working kind of, man. A good band to me. I don't, I don't care for the. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> yeah, I don't care for uh, the post first album I, Rush. I, uh-huh. I, I see you. I uh, see you. Yeah. <laughs> Rush, Rush fans are kind of like Kiss fans, they're, they're real prickly and they get. Kicked, uh, they get their asses kicked as teenagers a yeah, lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, kind of falling in, uh, we, we've kind of lined ourselves up perfectly here. So, with Cap mentioning that September date, basically they just ran super hardcore all the way up until October. And then they take a small break in, uh, well, actually, they took a break in August of 74 to record their follow up record, Hotter Than Hell. Okay, when, what do you have for that, the dates on that? Was that, I've got, that was recorded in August of 74? Correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's what I've got here. Yeah, so that was they kind of take a break in the middle of that first tour, kind of after the Atlanta dates, or right before the Atlanta dates, rather, in September. And, yeah, uh, should we just go ahead and roll on into talking about tracks, or we want to go ahead and talk about producers and sound and I'd stuff like, like that? I kind of want to talk about how this record kind of made a really big impression on me when I first you know, was okay. exposed to it. I was over at uh, my friend's uh, place, uh, the same guy I mentioned earlier that I talked to over the show. I'll give him some love, uh, Jordan Turnage. Miss you, buddy. 
uh, I was at his place, and uh, his dad was the record collection guy. Got it. And he had Kiss Alive, Hotter Than Hell, and a bunch of others. But I think Hotter Than Hell stuck with me because of the you know the aesthetic of the album cover and like the spread mm-hmm. and all that too. There's like a little bit of uh, you know the Japanese you know. Uh, uh, manga style and all that i don't know for some reason the aesthetic of that whole record stuck with me and it was the, and uh even back then when i first listened to it i was like this album sounds weird and i have no idea why it is a weird sounding record but let's kind of go into you know i wonder so what what do you suspect was the rationale that they were going to take this and record it in los angeles i mean we can kind of go by you know what they have said paul was saying that it was kind of out of necessity that they were just on the road and that they wound up in la and it just wound up working so they recorded the record in la and we're trying to get a heavier sound because he just really was not happy with the way the debut record was turning out he's saying the guitar sounded thin it wasn't punchy without saying it it sounded like he said they wanted a bit more of a black sabbath tone i keep seeing that and i don't see how they would try to i don't see how you could land those songs in the end of that kind of a sound I, even I don't, like going blind yeah especially especially going blind because knowing really? what i what, knowing what i know about it but you know i'm, I'm before we get all to that yeah, yeah, though, yeah what they obviously for whatever dissatisfaction they had with the first album they still either didn't have enough say so with the record company or they felt comfortable enough and satisfied enough to to uh, use the same production crew with Richie Wise and Kenny Kerner. So it's it's the same team going in for round two, and you know what what was the my point is they obviously now say oh you know we had to do this or this was not what we wanted or blah mm-hmm. blah 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 but you know i'm questioning that because at some point you know i i think they were on a small enough kind of scale that they could probably successfully lobby to go you know we didn't think the first album turned out so good you know we've got to improve upon it let's get somebody else in with some fresher ideas blah mm-hmm. blah blah but none of this is, seems to have been discussed it's like okay these are the guys let's go you know and and, and that makes might sense come too from, it honestly might come from a money aspect because the That's one that, that everyone has said is that everyone was flat broke during this time so maybe it would cost more to try and get new hands where maybe, maybe. they had some sort of greasing the palm deal in I the just, back that we've not really heard or discussed well, I don't I'm, know I'm, maybe. I, mean, I think all that was uh, not outside the poss- realm of possibility but you know, I suspect that the truth of the situation is that they went with what they were comfortable with, yeah. working with the person they've already worked with. Now they've established a relationship with, and it was kind of like, okay, you know, it probably didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. And they and probably that, weren't as dissatisfied with that first record as they would become later on. I think <laughs> at the moment, they were probably still pretty jazzed that they even had a record. Right. Oh, yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know. But it just seems kind of... It goes against their own, you know, hyperbole to go, you know... Because, of course, with Kiss, everything was perfect and fully formed as it oh, came yeah, out of the box, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I do and they find were interesting, though, that so many similar personnel on this record versus the first one, and it got such a different sound. Yeah, that's always been a curiosity, because it sounds like it was recorded through, like, a plastic pipe. Mm-hmm. I know it. 
I don't, I, you know, and that's been recorded through a plastic pipe and mastered through a cardboard box. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a weird sounding record. It's just all that compression that they've used on it. And I think at the time, what they were probably going for was something that was very advanced sounding. Mm-hmm. But instead of sounding very advanced, it sounded very kind of weird. I yeah. don't know. It's it's a weird record. It, it's it's always sounded weird to me. But even when I was a kid listening to it. You know, I knew something was odd sounding about it, but it never occurred. You know, you don't think that deeply into it. As you get older, you start going, yeah, gee, this does sound kind of weird. And before I started paying attention to, like, release dates and everything, I actually thought Hotter Than Hell was their first record because of the way it sounded. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's like before I, like, you know, really learned, like, you know, the order of everything, I just heard how grungy that sounded. And I was like, oh, well, this has to be the first record. And then everything else after that sounded crystal clear. So that must be after they got the money. Well, uh, you know, but at this point in the game, looking back with hindsight, would you want it to sound any other way? That's the thing, too. That kind of adds to the whole vibe of the record with the art and, like, that's, you know, individual you know, uh, personality of a, uh, you know, that sounds like so, so weird, doesn't it? But it's like, a, you know, it's its own vibe. It's its own, you know, identity. Yeah, and it it's kind of like album. raw power. You know what I mean? If you mess with it, it kind of well, takes away from it. Well, that's the other thing that I keep going back to is that this sort of highly compressed kind of trebly kind of sound that a lot of these records were doing at that time was kind of the kind of industry kind of thing. I don't know. you and And so I look at it as kind of part of this time wave of you know early 70s early 70s kind of production style that it was very advanced sounding for its time but you know to maybe break it down a little further kind of really thinking about each instrument and the way it sounds in the mix i think maybe if they had just a different snare tone people might not talk about it as much but the snare i think is the big outlier because the guitars sure they're a little muddy but exactly what you are saying. I mean, you got the raw power guitars. I mean, you could still have a powerful guitar sound like that. I think that snare just having such a weird tone to it is what sets that record off on that weird production kilter. I think yeah, if everything sort of, else had been fine, I, I don't think it would be discussed nearly like, as much. It has kind of like a distortion on the drums, too. It sounds mm-hmm. like every snare hit sounds like it's getting like a piece of paper crumpled with mm-hmm. it at the same time. Yeah. But it's like all of us here, you know, taking our times in studios, we've heard, you know, the way different things can get layered. And I think the bass, kind of mentally hearing it in my head, the bass isn't too bad. Ace's guitar solo is always cut clear and really nice paul had a good tone on stuff like going blind and coming home i think it's the drums the drums and like the acoustic guitars on coming home are kind of weird on the recorded version and going blind you know just kind of like that weird uh kind of like fuzzy you you know do you think there's acoustic on that i've never heard acoustic on that that's interesting well the clean guitar sounds if it's not an acoustic it if it's not an acoustic, they I've always, may have doubled always, it, but I think they might I, have. I know they did that when they in, in Dress to Kill, but I don't know if they were doing it that early or yeah, not. But I, I was going to say, I think you're referring to the guitar tone I was talking about, and that's Paul's tone. Okay, the kind of cleaner one that was yeah, kind of clean like, and kind of jangly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah, that's Paul's kind of open chord stuff on those records. That and going blind too. That's just kind of like you know, it just sounds uh, like I said, it has its own vibe, but it still sounds kind of weird. Hmm. Let's kind of look at it track to track here, because um, to me, it sounds a little disjointed, this album. Like, you know, you kind of can tell they're kind of reaching for 
maybe some existing scraps and trying to flesh them out without, uh, you know, finding any kind of cohesive kind of line, I guess, for, for the whole album to come together as an album. So I'd agree with there's that. There's stuff on that that is um, a little bit, uh, you know, it's kind of like left field for them in a way, and in a way that they would never really kind of come back to. So there's some unusual stuff in it, but then there's stuff in it that seems to me is like absolutely quintessential kiss absolutely and stuff that people don't always necessarily acknowledge that i think was very very obvious to me and that is i think there's a lot of influence from r&b in this uh and when i hear uh, got to choose with the big guitar wah, wah, whatever i hear a horn section oh i never th- i never would have made that connection you know i could hear that song transitioning very easily into like a big kind of like you know soul funk whatever kind of a thing you know yeah. i've never put those pieces together either but that hear, makes absolute sense there's a ton of songs that we'll go into as we go into other albums where i can hear guitars kind of doing what i think or would be in any other situation a, a horn section and actually before we actually go into the track by track this is one of the few records i'm gonna throw it off kilter for a second i'm not used to the real track listing of this record because this was my first experience with Hotter Than Hell. I'm holding in my hand right now mm. an old 70s cassette tape of Hotter Than Hell. That's not a 70s cassette tape. Is it tape? not a 70s no. cassette tape? That's the cream one. Uh, no, it's Polygram, so this oh, okay. would be the 80s. Okay. Well, then an 80s reissue, but if you look at the back, Russ, what does the record end with? Oh, that's weird. It ends with Coming Home. Yeah, this is a complete different... Um Track listing. Track listing. So I'm huh. so well. Let's see. Yeah, that, yeah. I didn't know this existed. Yeah. So my first real experience with Hotter Than Hell was always with that cassette tape. That was an old tape mom had. So in my head, that record always ends right. with coming home. Right. That's weird. That Str- would never. Yeah. I can. I can see how that would throw you kind of sideways. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to throw that out real quick. That there is a weird alternate on the uh, the uh, the uh, the poly. What you say? Polygram. This was somebody somewhere once kind of cataloged yeah. all this stuff and and notated all the differences between the. Oh, the Kiss FAQ has yeah. a ton of that stuff. Say, oh, is it on there? Okay, yeah. well, that, then that would be for Kiss nerds to go and explore. You know, maybe I'm violating Kiss nerd uh, code of ethic by There's not bo- knowing that. But I, I was unaware that the Polygram tape was a yeah different just, track order. We just so, broke everybody's brain with that. Honestly, a little bit. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go a, a quick comparison of side one and side two because it is a little shifty it's odd so uh, official release that everyone's used to we've got got to choose parasite going blind harder than hell let me go rock and roll right on the cassette tape that i grew up with it was got to choose strange ways going blind hotter than hell let me go rock and roll Hmm. Well, that that only alternates one song for the other on that, but when you get to side two, it's completely different. Yeah, side two, uh, official release, all the way, watching you, mainline, coming home, strange ways. Side two on the cassette tape was Parasite, all the way, watching you, mainline, coming home. 
it's so it's weird. it's it's hmm. very odd. Well, so well, I almost of, prefer the well, cassette tape lineup. That's, that's what you grew up with. You're gonna, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, but let's stick to the the of original course. album order. Of I mean, course. you know, you, like I said, you go through and you start with uh, got to choose, got to choose, yeah. And you know, that was an early favorite of mine. I just you, I can I can hear those as big horn parts, those guitar parts. <laughs> So you got that. Um, and you know what was interesting is now with you saying that, that would have been a cool thing for them to do with the symphony. Well, yeah, I guess. Uh, I'm not a fan of that symphony thing, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but, uh, when you, but I think it's more clever the way they're doing it. Um, I think it shows a lot of the, uh, you know, I, I hate to use the word intelligence. I wouldn't say intelligence, but it's pretty creative that they're coming up with these parts and putting it together in the way they are. Mm-hmm. Even the lead part on that is a very simple kind of lead. It's mm-hmm. not a lot of uh, a lot of scales and stuff. He's pl- kind of playing... It's real melodic. That's yeah. the thing that people forget about Ace. He wrote really melodic you know, solos where it all mattered to where like if you throw one note off, it's going to mess up the whole thing. It really serviced that song really well, and I think that's a it's a good, strong opening song, um, mm-hmm. and then of course it follows into uh, "Parasite," just a ripper, which is, you know, again quintessential kind of. I mean that that, you know, that riff is pretty killer. And uh, Paul actually references in his book. Uh, he says that uh, "Boomerangs '99 and a Half Won't Do" kind of launched the inspiration for the riff of "Got to Choose." Okay, so I think I probably read that somewhere, but mm-hmm. I've never gone back to listen to the. Oddly enough, Paul's book has been one of the more like in depth things. Like when Gene talks about being in the studio, he talks about like you know what he thought about being in the studio. You know, and Ace talks about oh, and I recorded guitars, and Peter's like, and they didn't let me do my shit. Paul, <laughs> Paul's the <laughs> Paul's the only one that is like you know. The inspirations for this came from this. We were using these kind of recorders, and we recorded it on this well, day. It's, he seems like the only one that actually kept a better log of that. Paul always seemed to have, his writing style always seemed to have, um, uh, uh, trying to figure out a right way to say this. He was always kind of um, a good copier. Yeah. Of, of, of existing styles. Mm-hmm. He's always in of the moment. I think, but it's always filtered through the Kiss thing. Yeah. Is so there, it kind of gives it its originality. But if you kind of listen, even all the way, I mean, all the way through the band's history, Kiss, uh, Paul's always tried to stay very contemporary. You know, I don't yeah. think the other, uh, certainly not with Gene, I don't think Gene was ever quite concerned about whether or not it sounded contemporary or not. Gene was going to write what he's going to write, and that's, here it is, you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Gene was quite as uptight about what got used and what didn't as Paul did. Um, well, because Gene notoriously was saying, I mean, and also we kind of see proof of it. He's not just being hot-headed. We see it with his vault. Dude could write, you know, five songs a week. So it's like, oh, you didn't like this one? Okay, cool. I'll come back tomorrow yeah, with another here's one. Here's a new one, yeah. Yeah, so he, he seemed to not and mind Paul as put much. a lot of time into it, but Paul seems to reflect a lot of his influence, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, and especially at this stage in the game because they're like, you know, and I think they've even said as much that they were kind of reaching for ideas at this point because they already, you know, you know, when you when you go into your first album, you've got, you know, a lifetime's worth of material to draw from. Now mm-hmm. you're in your second one. It's like, 
hey gotta have new songs mm-hmm. let's go let's go so mm-hmm. we're only a few months into uh yeah. our second uh, or in our first year of being a band you yeah know? i mean the first album came out you know in what february of 74 and here they are in august already having to come up with second record and mm-hmm. it's like let's go we gotta produce yeah and to work on what you said i had this just as a note for when we got to it but yeah the uh, the two rehashes or the reworks they were doing was uh, watching you and let me go rock and roll those were leftovers from the first album sessions yeah, leftovers from the Wicked Lester songs, leftovers songs, yeah, yeah, not yeah. recordings. No, not recordings, yeah, yeah, but yeah, right. leftover songs. Well, correct. watching you was on the demo. I think watching you is a, a killer song. I can't believe that they didn't make it onto the first album when they put something like uh, I'd agree with that love theme from Kiss on it instead. <laughs> like, Wait, what? Huh? That but, doesn't make sense. But going through, let's yeah, yeah, keep yeah, it the same song, Parasite. But, Ace Fraley right. Oh yeah, we got got to choose as a Paul Stanley right on that one. Parasite, Ace Fraley, lead vocal Gene Simmons. And Gene also allegedly wrote uh as with the that kind of middle part on uh um, a rhythm guitar or something like well, that. Well, he wrote the like in Cold Gin, he did the um the that sounds like Gene's riff, on a bass. and I think with Parasite, the same thing, like similar kind of thing, where mm-hmm. you know he does. I see, I'm getting them flipped in my head now, talking about them at the same time. I I, but that. they, but they have similar kind of vibes to them anyway. But Ace plays bass on the track Parasite too. See, I'm not aware of that, but it doesn't surprise me. I don't know I how often that kind of stuff would happen, but yeah. Well, who who was uh, quoted as saying that one? Wikipedia. <laughs> well, there you go. You never know. You can't you take that with a with a. But it, you know, but it's it's very likely. I don't think that was unusual, and I think they've pretty much copied that. And the, mm-hmm. there are moments where it was like it was quicker and easier for someone to do something. They'd be like, "Oh, Ace knows this. Just do it." Yeah, I, even, especially because that riff is like kind of weird too. Like it's not. It's, it's kind of unorthodox, really. It's not, yeah. You know, um, there's a quote I read where Ace was talking about when he came back and they had gotten to play it with Bruce Kulick and, you know, he played it much more of a musician style where it was a lot more staccato. Mm-hmm. And Ace's is a lot more from a wrist, kind of sloppy, kind of whatever. And I hate to use the word sloppy, but just loose. Loose is good, yeah. Which makes, which gives it its style to me. Personality, yeah. you know. And, you know, that's, all that leads into, you know, what makes these songs, it's those little things that makes the song great takes the song from being good to great and when they took it and gave it to bruce kulik nothing against bruce kulik whatsoever i'm not gonna you know he seems like a nice person but mm-hmm. you know it's not my style it doesn't suit me and so that's yeah. where you take a great song and just merely make it good did you not yeah. like anthrax version of parasite i don't know that i ever took the time or had the want to hear it <laughs> There's a there's a fantastic by fantastic I mean awful version of Parasite that uh, John Five did with Ace not too long ago. Yeah, yeah that showed up on the Ace Origins uh, record recently. I don't recently. think I have an interest in hearing that either at this point. <laughs> now, like, so all you need to know is so imagine that little riff of the beginning riff. Imagine Ace playing the riff, but the John Five guitar in the background kind of going that feedbacky. I don't getting know. Louder I, don't, and louder. I wouldn't know that guy if I heard him. Well, just imagine. I don't think I'd know that guy that if he walked sound. up to me and spit me in the face. But I will say this: at this point in the game, I'm of a mind where I say there are a lot of great guitar players in rock and roll, but there ain't a lot of great rock and roll guitar players. Ooh, and, put that and, on a t-shirt. Well, I mean, it's just the it truth the, of it. Yeah. You know what? I mean, you know, I'm not going to sit here and and it's like. I don't know these guys personally, so it's not like a personal thing, but 
you know, I would forever and ever rather hear uh, a sloppy Ace Frehley guitar solo than listen to one, uh, you know, perfectly executed Eddie Van Halen anything. Yeah. Any day of the week, because mm-hmm. Eddie Van Halen interests me about as much as uh, studying, you know, British literature from the 16th century. <laughs> See, that was me with Ingve Malmsteen. Bores me. To, I mean, there's just nothing interesting to me about that at all. Yeah. Zero. And I mean, and, 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 and I understand why I got. I know that there's there's connection. We'll get to all that. Oh, oh I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say, but to <laughs> pull my connection to Kiss with that is the differences, and we're going to turn it into this. It's just related because Paul recently mentioned it almost in your exact words, saying that's why he preferred having Tommy in the band because he was consistent. He was being asked because at the time of recording this, the Kiss off the soundboard to a 2001 recording came out with Eric Singer and Ace Frehley lineup. And they were asking Paul in reflection to Ace's guitar playing, what did you think of this recording? And he said, well, he's a very erratic player. We didn't know what we were going to get with Tommy. He's a lot more of a reliable, consistent player. So that even kind of falls into what with you were saying. You're like, well, that bores me. Yeah. Well, that erratic kind of thing is what kind of gives it a, again its style. It makes it interesting. That, and yeah, sometimes it's bad. But but that yeah. point though, you don't know what you're going to get. There's kind of an excitement to that. Well, there's an excitement. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a little more of an emotion to it. But um, you know, that's. Um, but most people would have been kind of trained into this idea, which I think is sort of the kind of came through the British scholars, the, the Eric Clattons and Jeff Becks and, and these kind of guys that, uh, you know, they were, like I said, scholars. They, they were academic and they didn't necessarily feel the music they were playing because it was filtered through this academic kind of knowledge. So it's mm-hmm. more brain than heart. And even if it has more heart, it has more heart than balls. Yeah. And, you know, there was a great thing that I read once by a British uh, journalist named John Savage who said something about Americans could do something the British could never do. And that is just unselfconsciously rock the fuck out <laughs> you know british egos the british guys can this is a british journalist acknowledging you know we had to kind of uh we had to had to take a different angle into this and learn it a different way yeah you know and that's not to say there weren't british groups that could not you know that just did rock the fuck out but mm-hmm. generally as a whole you know and i think that spilled over though that influence came into the american idea and you know via uh all the ones that I just said, yeah, um, you know these kind of academic British groups. Then you had, yeah. you know, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and yes, and all and, these guys that were Aces heroes and, and everything well, too. The, well, yeah, to a degree, but Ace, I don't think played like that. And and you know, so you get to this neoclassical kind of guitar playing, which leads into the '80s, and then it became. That's not impressive anymore. It was after like a watching minute. a stenographer work, you know. It was Side just, note: I don't think I've listened to a single Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer song, but I've heard so many people use that band as like well, the basis huge in the of early bullshit. 70s. They were they were a big band in the early seventies. Like, I think it's also important to note that again, as we're looking at Kiss at this point, mm-hmm. that. This is uh, 74, and we're coming out of the glam era, the glitter era, that, of course, was a lot larger in Britain than it ever was in America. Right. So you're seeing a death to glitter or whatever, but you're seeing these groups 
that are coming up in the wake that have eclipsed in a lot of ways a lot of the British glam groups and these other British groups. But they're you can see it in their in their presentation. It is now filtered over. You're seeing a lot of the flash kind of uh, certainly like the uh, costuming and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is mainstream groups that are doing this now. I mean, you could. Certainly Elton John, but I think Elton John always had a foot in the glitter thing anyway. But Elton was his own thing. But I, I, it made me think of it by saying Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, they're wearing yeah. kind of silvery glitter outfits on stage. Even the Rush Rolling kind of, Stones yes. at some point, you know, all of a sudden Mick Jagger's on stage wearing eyeshadow, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and they're wearing the frilly, you know, multicolored clothes and stuff. So this influence is permeating into mainstream and and you know a lot of the vanguard groups particularly in america as we're seeing with the dolls are kind of getting chewed up and spit out and forgotten while other groups are building off of their influence and their their, you know where they've spearheaded and broken the ground now Mm -hmm. the other groups are coming in and taking that ground and claiming it as their own yeah Yeah. this is the way it's always worked but you're seeing it in in a very explicit fashion. And it's getting kind of darker, and, too. And it's very exemplified in the next song. But before we move on to that, uh, Parasite, where's that land with you guys? Because we all basically Ooh. agree we love that. Oh, got to choose. That's a great song. I mean, that's one Top of Top three, probably for me. I, I of all time or on the record? On the record. Okay, just asking. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd probably be in that same group. Anytime I'm on this record, that's that's one I, I can never skip. But no, exactly what you're saying. I think Going Blind almost is like the soundtrack for maybe the Death to Glitter because that's like such a plodding song, and it's well, like it that's comes, almost the antithesis of. It comes from a different spot though. That is a you know um, that was a co-write with Steve Cornell. Uh, Wicked Lester days. Wicked Lester and and an early songwriting partner of Gene Simmons. The connection of how they, you know, Steve Cornell was who who introduced Gene and Paul to each other. Uh, That is, and you can hear it if you're if you're familiar with the group Mountain at all. And Steve Cornell said that was kind of his attempt to kind of rewrite theme for an imaginary western. I can see ah, that. You can totally see that, especially and, with and, the bass. Yeah, and they uh, just the, even the that whole rolling melody, the way it all kind of comes together, and then you've got the crazy Gene lyric, that nonsensical. What does this mean? Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't have to. So Paul takes credit for that line. The uh, uh, I'm uh, you're 13. I'm 60 or whatever. Well, that may well be true, but that, it, yeah. it, it, that would be feeding I'm 93, off of, 16. Yeah, that's what it is. You know, one thing that Gene does really well is just write nonsensical lyrics, and and you know, as long as it was outrageous and weird and, and then catchy, it, then it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love this song. I have always I loved too. this song. It's mm-hmm. probably my favorite song on this album. Uh, I, I like the lead on it. Um, I love the bass line that's in it. That's one of my favorites. Super melodic. I just, I, just the way you know, it's a, it's an eerie song. Um, I love the MTV Unplugged version. Yeah, I, I mean, think that's well, fantastic. It's a good song. I think it's going to survive. It's, uh, you know, even a different interpretation. Mm. Depending on and even Bruce's interpretation wasn't bad because it was a little bit more on the ones kind of solo and vibe. Yeah, well. Um, what I like about it, the the lead on the uh, on the studio version here, um, it sounds uh, it sounds to me, and this is guitar stuff that I'm really I'm not really qualified to say, but I know a little bit about on a Les Paul guitar, you can toggle between 
the pickup on your neck to the pickup on your bridge. Yeah. And the bridge pickup is the hotter pickup. Mm-hmm. That's Ace's preferred spot. He never uses a neck pickup. Yep. Back, you know, on, on even, the on the on his uh, even you know, though he had three at one point, never used any of those other two. No, the other ones, yeah, that was all for show. Uh, but I think he's using his neck pickup on this solo. It sounds like it's got that it has a bit tone. of warmth to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a lot different. A little bit of honk, as they say. It's 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 just a you know. I, I always use the word tubular. It's like tubular, dude. But it has <laughs> that, really the like, whole album sounds like it's recorded through a tube. But I mean, <laughs> and I really like the effect they have on it. Kind of like that open air kind of yeah, almost the, empty auditorium yeah, sound. The to reverb it. on it is mm-hmm. really yeah, and it just it's it's kind of a spooky sounding song. It's got kind of I, I say gothic quality when I say that. I don't mean like goth like Bauhaus. Bauhaus. I mean like <laughs> but like the lyric like, content, like and all old that. Hammer movie gothic kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So. And the other thing I like on it too, talking about production aspect, I like the octaves they threw in after the solo when Gene comes back in with the "Cause I think right. I'm going blind." When the guitars pop back in, I swear there's one extra guitar doing an extra harmony on top of that's, it, and it kind of adds like this cool octave effect. I know what you're talking about. I mean, all of that works. I think, and it's all possible because uh, they probably have a little more time and a little more space to experiment some in the studio than they did on the prior record. But again, they're also up against the clock. But um, it's three hundred dollars an hour. Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> so that follows into which is one of my least favorite kiss songs ever it's in my bottom ever. three from this album I don't well, I, th- well I, I like the out the uh the coda out i do too the from, from the gong out yeah mm-hmm. yeah that part there's a song there <laughs> yeah i love that but higher than hell even when i was a kid i remember thinking this is kind of dumb you know and it seems like to me it's like a half-baked idea that's been worked into a song and somehow it became the title cut this is one of the first songs I heard where I went, you know, where I learned that rock songs could be dumb. Well, it's okay to be dumb, <laughs> but there's a difference between, you know, there's a fine line between stupid and clever. Right. right. Yes. yes. <laughs> and this is just kind of stupid. I don't, it just doesn't. She'll burn you like the midday sun. Well, I mean, it just sounds like something that a, a junior high school guy would write, that, you know, and I, I get that. That would be cool, but I, I, yeah, it I just totally seemed like that. there's something more that could have been done and said there. I don't know. Oh, no, I agree. It's very, it's very, very. And there's probably people listening to this going, fuck this guy. That's a ruse. <laughs> oh, no, Man, well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get polarizing when we get into the mid 70s, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> because there, there's, there's an extremely popular classic kiss song that every Everyone loves that I can go the rest of my life and never hear again. I, I have a very strong guess what it is, and I probably agree with okay. it. But, that, uh, that riff's kind of fucked up, too, isn't it? That well, it. No, I'm okay with even that. Oh, I the just, riff's cool. I just think that, I guess lyrically is what really just bothers me about it. It just doesn't seem like, it doesn't ring true on any level to me, you know? I mean, I guess yeah. it does, but it just... Very, like, uh, mm, what's the word I, I'm looking for? I don't know. It just... Very t- very teenage jocular. I don't it's very ham fisted, kind of like yeah, yeah like kind of like I'm I'm scraping for some lyrics here. This will work. Okay, let's go. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that way on a song. Actually, on the next record, we were talking about today. We were doing some errands and we were listening to uh, "Dress to Kill" in the car, and I was like, "This is probably the stupidest lyric yeah. I have ever heard." But no, the only uh, the only info I have on this is uh, another Paul attribution. Uh, he attributes Free's song 
All Right Now was the inspiration for Harley. Yeah, than I, can, oh, I can see I that. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I have heard that before. And, and, and but I mean, All Right Now is a better song. You know? <laughs> Easily, it, it just it just Easily. is. It's like a bad take on All Right Now. Uh, so so far, great even, album, bad title song. It's not. It's just not a strong one. But that outro part is. F- Killer. That saves the song. I mean, that is just rip and destroy. Song. But rip and, Stro- rip and destroy was a better version of this thing. <laughs> rip and destroy. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll come to whenever we get to that part of the deal. But so after that, we got "Let Me Go Rock and Roll," a Simmons Stanley co-write with Gene singing, and probably also in my top three songs on the record if not top five all-time favorite kiss song i love this track i do too i, I do too I, I gotta say i like it i think it's got uh, a lot of what they did really well in this in this era mm-hmm. uh you know again kind of a somewhat nonsensical lyric from gene but that's yep. okay he's just making a you know kind of like a a Chuck Berry rocker or a Slade Alive well, rocker. Yeah, it's a very kind of Slade. They want to. They're going for an anthemic quality. You know, let me go rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Just you know, let's you know. And then the great the, Ace the, solos. The, the, the yeah, the Chuck Berry on speed kind of thing going on, and that's with the breaks and stuff. I mean, it, it harkens back to to, and I I don't mean this the way it probably going to sound, but it harkens back to kind of the fifties kind of rockabilly it thing, does. Uh, kind of a especially. Record repetitive, just you know, especially with that bass line. It's it's a it's a killer song. I'm I'm surprised that it didn't get more legs. And obviously, in its early incarnation live, it was the centerpiece of their show as their closer. Was this not the single too? I'm not sure what the singles were off of this. I didn't, you know, I haven't got that in front of me. Do you know? Uh, according to Wikipedia, it does claim uh, "Let Me Go Rock and Roll" uh, released October twenty second seventy four. As uh, the single, yeah, but that's all no, suspicious. Anything too. off of Wikipedia yeah. is kind of suspicious. I, I'm mainly using Wikipedia just as songwriting credits and track listing. <laughs> yeah, you we kind of use it for talking points. Yeah, <laughs> and honestly, uh, one of the more clever things I've ever heard them do production-wise is in this song. So the Chuck Berry on speed part with Ace's solo. So you've got the that go into the full solo. When he's doing the riff, when he does the slide, Gene slides on the bass with him. And it adds this cool little boom. That's one of my favorite little things. And I honestly think and even talked about a live version a little bit. That is probably one of the more well-orchestrated Kiss solo bits. Because there's a bit where Paul is playing something completely different than what Gene is playing. And Ace is soloing on top. And Peter's just going fucking wild behind the kit. And to me, that just feels like one of the more better orchestrated well, jam social, solo sections they ever you're wrote. You're seeing the band start to gel in this period in a way, I think, having been on the road. Because, again, you got to remember that going into that first album, they only played a handful of shows prior to that. I mean, relative speaking, you know, they weren't playing regularly as, as, or as, as often as a lot of the other New York bands were, which we discussed. So, mm-hmm. really, they're starting to gel as a band 
post first album come yeah. and and you're starting to see this stuff come together more on the second album and of course you're going to see it a lot more coming out of this album going into the third but mm -hmm. they're like recording and performing together a lot yeah. in a year yeah so the, it's, it's, it's only it stands to reason that, that this kind of stuff was going to become more prevalent oh yeah well, now it's time to lift that needle flip, flip it, it on over, over and when we get all the way launching us into side b and honestly simmons right and lead a vocal very underrated i think this song so. does not get the love it deserves when i was younger i didn't like it as much as then i realized as i got older how much more i like it now and i don't know what what has brought me to the dance on that but i know what it did I for really me really love it now that's kind of how i feel about this album yeah. i love the lyrics even though there's kind of like you know high school type lyrics there's something so charming well, about the chorus to that song you just keep talking louder all the way to your mama and father one of these days father, you'll yeah. push me all the, the way, way. Like this is like, like, gonna <laughs> like i'm gonna kill you like jason Voorhees or some shit oh i'll i'll hear i'll hear, I I was hear like a one of these days oh that too <laughs> kind of thing well, I, you know, you say you say high school. I say, uh, and I think that was a that teenage kind of thing was very important to them. I think they everything was filtered through trying to uh, appeal to a teenage mindset or a teenage audience. That's one of the weird dichotomies about this band, particularly in this era, is they, you know, I don't think anyone quite knew where to put them because you're seeing the advent of FM radio at this time, and they really aren't an FM type band. They're not the kind of band that would fit. You know, neatly on an FM radio. Not I feel like they, they were playlists to. probably so much on FM. Oh, I think so too. But I think mm -hmm. they probably saw themselves as more of an AM rock band, which back then was top forty. Right. You know, we, we I think people today don't understand that there was a delineation between AM and FM back in the day, and AM was almost exclusively exclusively the domain of top forty radio, whereas mm -hmm. FM was considered a more progressive format. Right. Almond Brothers, yeah, Grateful and, Dead, and, and people could get away with Rush. playing entire album sides. And such back then uh, that you obviously would never have heard on AM. AM, you know, you had your classic DJ, you know, walking on the records between songs. Donny Osmond and things like that, probably and, right. And it was certainly, and I think Kiss were wanting that, but they really, you know, because they're still, you know, primarily kind of a pop oriented band, they're not a Black Sabbath type of band. They're not really a heavy metal band per se. Yeah. They're being. Uh, probably promoted as such in a way. I don't know, you know, how how uh, prevalent the term heavy metal was in this era, but I don't think necessarily from songwriting. But so like earlier when I mentioned Sabbath, I think they were just trying to go for that like sonic yeah, sound. Yeah, right, I understand. The, the dark I, at the same time, at the same time, I don't think that even suits what Kiss is trying to do. I mean, no, they're, I don't they're think very much a direct kind of hard rock kind of a thing. They're you know it was more of a party than you know a dark you know mood though right right and but you know i don't think they've fully fleshed out or developed the whole concept at this point you can tell there's mm -hmm. still it's still being it, you know it's a work in progress and they're kind of chomping at the bit which kind of gives it its energy and its excitement and and they're trying to find exactly you know who it is they're going to be and how they're going to do things and you can see it in, like I said, this song seems, this album, excuse me, was a little more disjointed as far as the songwriting, but like all the way. Uh, 
all the way is got the potential to be you could pull out a lot more heavier kind of a riff out of that mm-hmm. than it is but it's a little more slinky sounding mm-hmm. and and uh, and again I, I keep going back it has kind of a, almost like an r&b kind of a vibe to it Not, i can see that i don't know how i can describe that in a way that you know if you if you understand what i mean then i there's no explanation there, there's a certain vibe to that classic r&b that was kind of finger snappy mm-hmm. that you kind of had and if you deconstruct this song to a way where you want to relate it to R&B you can absolutely hear it that, mm, well mm, I think the idea is that they're mm, trying to come mm, up with something that was danceable and Paul and, and Jean were and, very vocal about those influences too well true and, and but I think the idea is I think there was an unconscious understanding that if the song was danceable then it might be playable on the radio and that was paramount to them and so, also I have to give huge props one of the best ace solos on the record too like when it just comes to that slinky yeah. uh looseness that well, you were gets, talking there's about that one part where he just hits that one note and he's kind of he got a kind of vibrato on it just yeah. or whatever and it's it, it, doing that doo, 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 doo. but bow, it doesn't scream bow. it doesn't it's not a screaming kind of a thing and it, it was almost it, a mistake that ooh, we just need to keep yeah, that yeah mm-hmm. but it sounds of- like he's almost like losing the note he's just holding it by just the tail end of the note itself and it's just barely there and it's like and even the notes coming back in yeah. still sound like a little bit of a struggle before you you hear him grab it again yeah. for that it, 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 outro and if it had that fluidity and and, and skilled perce- per, you know perfection behind it like mm-hmm. in any other guitar player's hands it wouldn't be the same and it wouldn't feel the same and it wouldn't be right wouldn't be ace it, a wouldn't lot of, be, it certainly wouldn't be ace there's a lot of great ace moments on this record yeah it well, really yeah. is ace is really inspired on this and we'll, we'll even with the next one we got watching you another simmons right and lead vocal again a song like probably still could even be heavier in a way but in a way if it had been it might it's here's when opposites work if it had gone heavier it still wouldn't have been the same song it might not have felt the same it's not it because have, I've, it wouldn't I've, be as direct I've unfortunately heard many a heavy metal version of this where they did the down tuning. This isn't Black no. Sabbath you're dealing with here. And this is, this is, you know, I, how can I liken this? You know, and I love Black Sabbath, but like a heavy metal band is giving you like full on body punches to the ribs and the, and the, and the gut. Right. Uh, Kiss is going more like jabbing you in the throat you yeah. know what i mean in this mm-hmm. song and that's their strong punch they're still kind of a and their strong punch too. is a jab to the throat and this is exactly what watching you does great <laughs> riffs in this song especially on the uh when it comes out of the everybody else is here watching you yeah. but just the riff i like the riff gene came up with a lot of those clever riffs you know, a lot of what you, like we've said, on the, well, where he just, dropped them in the middle of those A songs and yeah. he doesn't take credit for them. He's a great musician. Like, I say musician, I usually just say bassist, but he's a great guitarist too. He, well, he tries. A, he's a great riff writer, he that's is. for sure. And it, it's like, yeah, he may, people may, you know, chalk him up to, you know, marketing guy, money guy, but back here, yes, he may have had his eyes still set on the dollar signs, but he still had to have good material to back it up. And he was a songwriter and yeah. it, it shows in this early stuff. And is just really, really good. I hear, hear a lot of Led Zeppelin in these uh, songs with the riffs, at least. Uh, you can hear like maybe the riff from Heartbreaker. Heartbreaker, a lot of yeah. Led Zeppelin too. And probably, uh, I don't know. In an odd way, I would say this next song is the outlier on the record. 
Uh, I'd say it's the weakest track. The weakest track. I like it though. We've got mainline. No, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's pretty weak. Or mainline. It's mainline. The, it's the softest one by far. But written by Mr. Paul Stanley, sung this, by Peter Chris. Yeah, this really comes out of left field on this record. It doesn't it feel like kinda. It, it doesn't feel like a Kiss song, and I don't think it has anything to do with Peter Chris. I think actually, you know, there's there's the lore where they were saying, well, Peter was going, I'm going to sing this song, or I'm going to mm-hmm. quit, or whatever. Okay, you know what? So what if he did? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? There's no one else that should have sang this song yeah this is this peter sings it's the only saving grace to this song is peter singing this because if paul sung it it would have sucked yeah because it's not a good song to begin with i will argue and what there. saves it what saves it now this is my opinion but mm-hmm. in my opinion what saves it is peter and, mm-hmm. it, and it makes it a kiss song because peter has a feel for it that yeah I don't think anyone else could have sang it. Kind of has that faces, you know, vibe to it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. Now, I'll agree with you. Uh, By using a song that's also on this record, I feel like Parasite wouldn't have had the same sort of punch it did if they had gotten Ace to sing it. Mr. Ace Fraley, that is shy about his vocal and doesn't quite sure what he's doing, this, that, and the other. I'm glad we got Gene doing Parasite on that versus an unsure Ace. With Mainline, though... I think it's a great guitar riff and it's a good I like the uh even the verse melody that na 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 it's it it would be this is I hear big band in this one like the pre chorus uh won't you let me on through Well you got the R and B thing, yeah. But it might have been great for another band. I just say for Kiss and in 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 context with these songs and this group of songs. Especially after watching you <laughs> oh man it's not I'll, I'll, it's I'll not still have there. to rebel this, it, this might be in my top three this is my top three I'll say this is my top three hey, I'll say this top three alright I would rather Mainline though be on on a the first record. album no I, I could just, I would see I could, I'd still rather have Mainline on the first album as opposed to Love Theme from Kiss yep, yeah okay. yeah, I'll think I'll, 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 I'll probably say this for every record I'll be like well <laughs> oh, this might be the weakest song but you know what it could have been in place of Love Theme from Kiss and it'd been better now, but, uh, now is this is Love Theme probably your least favorite song from the 70s era yeah it's my I don't understand it at all I don't yeah. understand why I don't would you do that I don't count 80s because the there's plenty that? that we can pick that's yeah, bad well, in there yeah. but 70s yeah mm-hmm. I, it makes no sense why that even exists Exist, but we're 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 deep into hotter now. Where are we at? So next Man, is coming home. Coming home, yes. The the, the wrap up for me. What I'm used to is the wrap up. Uh, written by Fravely and Stanley, and of course, Mr. Stanley is the lead vocal on it. He's uh, probably getting a lot of co-writes on this, or three rather. Yeah, but, I wonder you know. to what degree he he contributed to this. Well, from all accounts, uh, from all of their books, and even what we were saying earlier, you know, they were just in the back of that van, you know, just riding around places and not uh, a van, a station wagon, station wagon, yes. And uh, I, from the best of my knowledge, from what I've been able to kind of gather, researching and looking around, they were just spitballing riff ideas, lounging in the back there and in between shows. So maybe Ace was just always constantly bored and fishing out his guitar and throwing out riff ideas. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't sound like an Ace riff to me. It does sound like a, you know a song somebody wrote on an acoustic guitar, though. It sound. I think he... It's, 
his part to me sounds like the walk down because think about like fractured mirror think oh, yeah. of other stuff that showed up right, on the solo right, material that sounds yeah. ace I never thought and then, of that. that's a good point and then paul picks it up with his choppy but i'll tell you this even when i was a kid and had this record this was a favorite song I've always yeah. loved this song. And acoustic, and I'm, I'm surprised they didn't push this as a single. And the acoustic version of this one that's on the, the Unplugged record is fucking great too. Yeah, I, I thought I was really I was really surprised when they opened their Unplugged thing with this. I thought that was a really cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, because it's kind of a forgotten song, and I always thought it, it was is. a pretty strong song. And again, though, however, I have to qualify this along with Mainline. It's very much outside the the structure of the rest of this album and in, in, in sonically as far as the you know the songwriting style and everything it's especially kind of through, well, actually, especially through that it's a very hell this filter. is very bubblegum sounding it's the most bubblegum sounding song on the record and and there's nothing wrong with that because it's it, when bubblegum's done well then it's great i mean you know who doesn't love bubblegum but indeed it well, just, let me ask you this you know, what do you, you feel if you see the... this sided next to if you saw this song sandwiched between parasite and watching you it would it would it would be a lot more pronounced <laughs> how different it is from the rest of the songwriting. But, you know, the way they've sequenced it, it kind of works. But, you know, and I love the song. It's one of my favorite Kiss songs. And, Mine too. Well, so I, I kind of, just to get your opinion, what do you feel that the overall vibe of this record is? Because just as a very, very fast recap, Got the Choose to me is just kind of classic, choppy rock and roll riff. Parasite's a little faster, groovy. Uh, going blind is the slower kind of heavier quote unquote uh, hotter than hell goes right back up to the got to choose kind of choppy kind of riffs let me go rock and roll expands on that all the way kind of drops it back down but more in a poppy bubblegum aspect a little bit still with all the way in my opinion watching you goes back to a parasite kind of attack main line is closer to all the way Coming home would be closer to all the way in mainline. So it almost feels like they kind of, at least with my perception of it, kind of hit on a bunch of different things and then called back to it throughout the record. I just, like I said, it just to me, it feels disjointed. It does. And it's it's because of what I just said. It seems like what it is. It seems like they're reaching for ideas and fleshing out uh, ideas without having fully developed them. You've got about, if. You know, if I'm looking at it with hindsight, I'd say you have half an album here finished, you know, and the other ones you, you've got starts on something that you might be able to do something with in another context later on. Like but, harder than hell. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> That's a good example. But, but now you get to this last track. Strange way. Which is strange in a lot of different ways because <laughs> it is a very unkiss like song. Very. But mm-hmm. it is flat out killer. It is a great it's, song. It's a dark little riff. Everything you know. they've done with this is is pitch perfect on it. Now how do you feel like I'll pull it back to my cassette tape again. This imme- this was track two. So this immediately followed Got to Choose. Do you hmm. think that's a better placement for it? No. So coming out of that da 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 da. Now you're bringing up the idea of resequencing the whole album, which no, not the whole album, just that no, one. I know, but if if you know ver- versus what you have on that cassette yeah, yeah, to yeah. the album versus to how we would do it, right? So no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't place it there at all. all right. uh, I I could hear it working though. Okay. I just you know. I, I don't know how you would qualify this because you know this album is such an anomaly and it's such a mix of different ideas. But 
again, I, after you know, 40 plus years, almost 50 years now of it. Yeah. Can you hear it any other way? Can it be done any other way? Should it be done anyway? No, it shouldn't. <laughs> it's it. Now it is what it is. It's hotter than hell and it's perfect as it is. Should it? No, but Paul you know, Graham did it anyway. We can, you know, we can armchair quarterback and second guess this all day long. And that's part of the fun of this. Yeah. But would I want it any other way? Probably not. So, no. and you've got, and, and again, strange way seems like to me, it's, it's the perfect closer for this. It's, you know, it's a, it's a dark song mm-hmm. and, and it's got that crazy lead in it. That is yeah. like probably Ace's best lead. That's, sounds like he's playing through a, a wah or at least a half cock. Kind of like wah. a cock wah. Yeah. And yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's something that's really unusual and it's, and it's, and and it makes it's probably not even really all that unusual. What makes it unusual is like you said, it's playing through the half cocked wall, and you've got the that kind of weird style to it that it's just unlike anything else really that he he would do. Yes, yeah. just an ace uh, solo uh, writing credit by himself on that one. And why did this song not ever make it to the stage? It seems like it's tailored for them to play live. From from my recollection of Gene's book, and then revisiting Paul's recently, from what I understand, this was almost a pity song that was put on the record. Like they weren't wanting to like make this part of it, but like I've heard a couple different things. So there's going to be a little bit of hearsay, but one side of it I heard there was going to be like a long, like a live type drum, drum solo, solo. Yeah. and that almost caused him to leave. And then like Gene was originally going to sing this, and then this was another where he went. I'm singing this or I quit. Like there, there's been a whole bunch of conjecture on a bunch of different stuff to the point where they kind of made it the last track as like a here, will you shut up? Yeah, but so <laughs> what? You know what? It's still a strong song and you'd have to know well, that I can see Even just Gene and Paul getting a stick it, up their ass and just not doing it because of I'm it I'm just saying that's selfish and stupid it doesn't oh, matter yeah. who's being selfish somebody is somewhere the mm-hmm. point is is from a fan perspective you're looking at it going gee that would have been a really killer song to have to see them do live to showcase Ace and, and Peter singing and you know as opposed to still being playing you know leftover songs like Life in the Woods or Acrobat <laughs> no which, joke <laughs> you know but now this that leaves the uh, the packaging and the and the marketing behind this record how they came to put together this album cover mm-hmm. uh, it's very unusual uh, the album cover was designed by a guy named John van hammersfeld who that's a mouthful it is a mouthful now this what's important? both the front and the back yeah well he did not the photography but the layout and the yeah. design and it was gotcha. his idea i believe to do the the um the japanese asian motif whatever yeah, the, uh, the manga if you will yeah i, I don't uh, that's what i read it was be careful cap don't you don't want them coming after us <laughs> you know, say it's the wrong thing yeah, and we're going to be a tell but it, it was <laughs> only one thing worse than a kiss nerd that's an anime nerd it's an anime nerd <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, you know. so something good network apologizes for captain nun if he did refer to the wrong side of that <laughs> that's right. you can forward all emails yeah. to that's right i'm a rush fan too it's all good <laughs> The statements made by Captain Number of Captain Number <laughs> did not necessarily reflect this. Uh, no, but you've got uh, this guy John Van Hammersfeld who designed 
the Beatles magical mystery tour cover and you can oh, see how close those are late but he also yeah. did he also did most famously Exile on Main Street for the Rolling Stones and that's a collage too and that's a mm. really cool album cover and so what's interesting to me is uh, he also did the Endless Summer movie poster have to look which up is a which is a very like. stark kind of graphic it's a famous stark graphic kind of thing I'm sure if I looked it up if I look it up, I'll recognize it immediately. So this guy has some pretty big stuff under his belt. And so somebody somewhere, obviously, at Casablanca saw that there might be something, you know, usable with this guy. And I can't imagine, you know, rather, as opposed to going with someone unknown. Although, you know, I don't I don't recall ever seeing his name on the cover. I might, I might be wrong. I didn't have a budget either, you know? And then they had Norman Seif, who was a famous photographer, come and do all the photography for it. I was going to say, anytime I've looked up information on the Hotter Than Hell graphics, I always find stories about that infamous photo shoot, you know, of Paul getting himself locked, or Gene locking Paul in the car to protect himself, all this stuff. I never, And we, of course, hear stories about the first record. We hear stories about Dress to Kill with it being a coin suit. I never hear much about the making of the Hotter Than Hell cover. It's... uh, yeah, it's curiosity because I don't know where they came up with this whole Japanese idea. And Maybe just the like, whole idea of the kabuki makeup. Well, that's what I think probably inspired they, the you know Hammersfeld or Van Hammersfeld or however you say his name. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the gonna, artist, the, yeah. So uh, he probably was inspired by that to a degree and yeah. took that and ran with it. And they kind of started keeping it on uh, on drum kits later on, like on Eric Carr's kit. And everything well, little Japanese the, motifs that one that one symbol the, the chakra ch- yeah chakra, chakra, chakra whatever that's you on say. the uh, center we're of a the, bunch uh, of North Carolina uh, boys yeah. we all know these fancy words <laughs> <laughs> might have been uh, a, maybe a gene thing too because he was into kaiju and things I, like that I have no clue he, he can say that after the fact who's to say who was at the time <laughs> well, of course I it was me you know yeah <laughs> and you don't know that they had much say or enough clout to have much say in these things at this point they mm-hmm. could have just been solely discretionary on the part of the record company going here's your album here's what the cover is i think uh, okay honestly you know, i love the cover i, I think it's too. great it's unusual i always thought it was a weird looking cover i did you know it's it's just so different from anything else they would ever do um but and also a production graphic nerd guy thing two records back to back where their band image is in black and white yeah uh, it's odd that the cover shot is in black and white where everything else is so colorful. Mm-hmm. Although that works for a cool contrast. But it then does. again, with Dress to Kill, that album cover was black and white also. So that was two back to back for a band that was so flashy, even though they wanted to do black, white, silver studs. Paul had red lipstick well, on and know. Peter the, had the a little bit of that color picture. Exactly. But the next one didn't, nor did the follow up. Oh, so oh, yeah, yeah. I do find it interesting that, yeah, even though they wanted black and white, silver kind of vibe, they weren't trying to bring out the pop of green in Peter's oh, yeah, eyes yeah, or, you know, yeah, the right. red and, you know, the lips and stuff. I the green at that point, but I, I yeah, can't Yeah, you're true, remember. you're true. But if you flip the album over, they're wearing uh, outfits on the, the particularly Gene is something that you never ever saw him ever wear in any yeah. other. Where did he find that? What was the point of that? Where were they going with that? I did hear that those were because uh, they were kind of making their own costumes at that point. That was kind of just test costumes, just to see. see like, just is for that, stuff. I've never heard. I've never heard a story behind that. I didn't know if maybe that was something that. Uh, 
was brought in by the photographer. Yeah, because I know Lydia helped in the early days with some costumes. There were other independent uh, leather helpers that were doing stuff. And I want to say that might have just been some concepts that they were working up that they eventually trashed. It's a cool costume. I don't know why I, would, I could see him using that. I wish he'd used it more. I think the uh, from the uh, album cover on the inside, the, the one image that sticks out with me is the one the big group photo where Gene's in the top right corner with his uh, cape spread. There we go. Now we got a visual aid that no yeah. one can look at. Well, I was, I was so anyone that wants to pull out their copy yeah, so and hell can look at it. There's nothing on the inside. Okay. They didn't press anything on the inside back in those days. Okay. But yeah. But no, yeah, so Paul's uh, outfit, so if listeners have their album pulled up or if they have their Google pulled up, yeah. No, the, Paul's Paul, basically just wearing nude. his. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's from the waist up. And I mean, Ace is wearing this sort of. I mean, all of it looks still very Asian. And if you didn't know who Kiss were at that point and you're picking that up for the first time, you could look at that and, and just go, are these. What is, is this like a Japanese band? Yeah. You know, who knows? But, you know, I think they were just going for that whole sense of curiosity mm-hmm. and, and the outrageousness of it and they were hoping that maybe the album cover in and of itself would be a sell point for someone that may not know who the band was because they're still breaking them and it kind of helps with a little bit of the dangerousness too because this was also the same era that they did that photo shoot with the girl where peter had the dagger and everything else well that is something to notice you've got a, a nude woman on the back and her, her nipples obscured by a well-placed star which is obviously after the fact that's something you would never see post 1978 kiss Mm -mm, or even 77 kiss for that matter i mean there's a point where you know at this point their audience that they think is their audience still seems to be more of a high school kind of a little bit older they're not geared towards little kids as they would be so it's like what alex was saying there's accused later on there's a sense of uh, danger to it still yeah i think that uh I don't even know if it's so much the idea of danger is just, again, just a generalized sense of outrage. They just are trying to be as outrageous as possible to attract as much attention as possible. Yeah. And, you know, without a lot of thought being probably put into it. I still think it looks super cool. I think the uh, back cover looks cooler than the front of it. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I'd, be, I'd fully agree with that. Well, that brings us up to... Uh, the Hotter in Hell album, and I guess it's a good place to close as we come out of this. We'll look at uh, the two or three months they were on the road before Dress to Kill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dress to Kill. So, you yeah, know, the, the later episodes I feel are going to be a little bit more like in sync with, uh, like we can just basically go like it was '76 and the band started. These first few episodes are going to be a whole. They were lot playing of- with Argent. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of the process because they're always on the move. They're always they're always touring, and this is only a short break before they're going to return to the road. And we'll uh, pick up with that on the next episode. So uh, hopefully you've been enjoying this, and we'll continue the ride as we carry on through the history of Kiss, album by album, year by year, and in this case, tour by tour. And uh, have some fun with it. Having, hopefully, having some fun with it. So, for Alex Stiff, Cap Nun, I'm Russ Ward, and we will see you next time on No Time to Turn. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com/slash something good network.